watching any movies or doing it do you have a routine like a thanksgiving to christmas routine in your household father Bryce? oh yeah uh, elise and i have a quite robust list of christmas movies that kind of grows and shrinks each year you know some years we are like ah we're sick of it's a wonderful life or whatever so we're not going to watch it this year and maybe something replaces it maybe some years we're just too busy to get through all of them but yeah Pretty much once Thanksgiving hits, it's kind of open season on starting the the Christmas movie list for us. Mm. What about have, you? Do you have, I have any to say I don't. No, I, I haven't watched Christmas movies in a, I feel like a really long time. I mean, I don't know how long it's been. I mean, maybe it hasn't been that long, but I, I don't know. I haven't watched Christmas movies in a while. That sounds kind of sad. It but... does. It does sound pretty sad. It <laughs> sounds it like you. It, it sounds like you should be starring in a Christmas movie of your own. Yeah, which would be very sad. I would be the sad character. And then, uh, but then you would like learn the value of Christmas. That's how all the movies go, right? Yeah. Yeah. What And what is the value of Christmas according to modern American Christmas movies or not so modern American Christmas movies? Uh, it's magic. Oh. It, it's love. It's togetherness. There's some good things sometimes. Nothing that has anything to actually do with the birth of Christ. Uh, I mean, very <laughs> rarely. Yeah. Maybe there's a nativity scene. There are some that are ostensibly about the about Christ, but I think are more about, you know, kind of American values. Mm. So I will bring up, well, I saw a movie a few years ago, Gods and Men, about a uh -huh. Trappist monastery in North Africa based oh. on a true story. That's some nice, cheery that, Christmas viewing. <laughs> that got, um, well, there's a really powerful scene because there's these, the movies like these Islamic militants mm -hmm. kind of terrorizing the area. Uh, committing murderous crimes. I mean, terrorizing both the Christian and the Muslim population. There's a really powerful scene though, where the abbot of the monastery stands his ground when the extremists come to the monastery making demands. They want to they take away the one monk who is a doctor hmm. because one of their guys got shot. And the abbot kind of stands his ground. Uh, first of all, he demands they meet him outside of the monastery because they have their weapons. Uh, and he said, no weapons are allowed in here. Mm -hmm. And then he just talk. He refuses. He says, "Look, he's asthmatic. He can't go with you." He says, "We treat everyone at the clinic. No questions asked." Mm -hmm. um, but then uh, one of the things he says is, "The guy's walking away, and it's it's obvious that he's the the abbot has prevailed." Mm -hmm. And the guy's walking away with his men. He then calls after him, and you have this feeling. This I you know I remember when I watched it the first time this gut reaction of like, "Oh no, just keep your mouth shut. Let him go." You know. <laughs> and he says, "Tonight is different than all other nights." And, and the, the kind of the leader of the extremists comes back and he's like, why is that? And he says, because tonight is born the king of peace. And he says to him in Arabic, you know, Said Naisa. And the guy says back to him in French, you know, Jesus. And then the extremist looks at him and he goes, well, then I'm sorry. You know, because he like, they stormed the compound or whatever. And then they go into the church because they're doing their midnight Christmas service. Mm -hmm. And they still have to say the service after all of that. Yeah. And it's really powerful, the connection. Um, with what happens and, and, you know, I'm not doing it justice right now at all, but it's a very powerful scene. So what are the more powerful Christmas scenes I've seen? I think. I think um, that's really interesting, especially in light of kind of the situation we find in the world right now. And his eminence's encyclical for Thanksgiving reflected this. And I kind of took that and, and also reflected on that, uh, in our Thanksgiving service at, at our parish as well, that it may sometimes feel superfluous or naive or or whatever to be celebrating these 
feasts, um, to be doing these divine services in the face of these great injustices or great sufferings going on in the world. And yet there's it's essential. The, the, they're, they're essential. Exactly. They're, they're essential to sacrifice this spiritual reality that is present mm-hmm. um, simply because we don't feel like it or it seems naive or whatever it might be mm-hmm. is to give up on something deeply true and beautiful and essential. And I think it's also to give in even further to the the dark powers, the powers of evil. I agree. All right. Well, you're listening to Church Coffee Pod where the theology is never watered down and the conversation keeps flowing. I'm Father Gregory. And I'm Father Bryce. So topic for this month is nihilism. I guess we could also say like despondency, despair, maybe um, Mm -hmm. standing over the pit of nothingness. Yeah, hopelessness. Uh, Hopelessness. And uh, so it's definitely, you know, what you were just kind of saying kind of segues into it a little bit because there definitely can be a feeling with all that goes on in the world. Of, yeah. of kind of a hopelessness. And so just to kind of get into it though, like how would you define nihilism or what would you say nihilism is? Yeah. So I, I think whether you're having conversations specifically about nihilism or not, you're certainly aware of at least the popular understanding becoming a, a very prevalent phenomenon. So, I mean, officially, if we're going to talk about the the school of thought, that is nihilism. Well, then, then it's a, a family of views, specifically within philosophy, that any one of which rejects some aspect or all as or all of the above of generally accepted uh, fundamentals of human existence, like knowledge, how we know things, morality, what's good and evil, or meaning. Right? Does does life have meaning? So there are various nihilisms within philosophy that may focus just on one or two of those. And then there may be kind of a much more overarching nihilism as well. But I think generally with when we talk about it within a more popular circle, we just kind of mean this idea that really deep down at the bottom of everything or at the center of everything or whatever directional metaphor you want to use, there's nothing or at least nothing good. Hmm. So like what are what are some examples of this, like from history or currently, or yeah, so help, help people, you know, okay, that that's the that's kind of the philosophical, that's kind of the that maybe the abstract talking about it, but help people see where they might encounter this. Sure. So I again, kind of, if you're having a, a more academic conversation about it, people are going to certainly bring up Nietzsche, right? Like, kind of everybody kind of knows the name Nietzsche, right? Famous, famously has one of his characters in in one of his treatises come down off a mountain and and say god is dead and we've killed him and uh, i think probably one of the more misunderstood pieces yeah. of philosophy but because yeah, he doesn't think that's a good thing when he says no it. not necessarily right yeah. uh or but even kierkegaard who is a very devout christian is in kind of the academic sense a nihilist because he he kind of goes after the Danish clergy and and church hierarchy because he sees a lot of hypocrisy uh, within that system. So we're again, we're not really necessarily talking about that specific academic understanding, but popularly, you know, something as simple as as Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Nothing really matters. Anyone hmm. can see nothing really matters to me. We've we've see, certainly seen a rise in the prevalence of anti-hero narratives, um, whether that be uh, kind of people who are still 
cast as good, right? They have they have good intentions, but they're fundamentally flawed. Or even several movies coming out from the perspective of the villain, mm. um, and and asking for us to kind of sympathize with the villain, even even if the villain is, I mean, does a lot of really evil stuff. You know, Chuck Palahniuk, the author of Fight Club and many, many other things, but Fight Club was probably his most popular thing, is a self-proclaimed nihilist. He's, he, that's, that's his shtick, thinks nothing really matters. Very popularly within certain sectors, uh, particularly kind of board gaming and, and video gaming kind of nerddom, H.P. Lovecraft's novels have kind of created this whole slew of popular culture where and and all of his all of his stories have gods in them and they are all evil right they all either they're all either ambivalent to humanity or directly antagonistic to humanity i was gonna say i would jump in here with a few thoughts so one thought though i mean so you were brought up the anti-hero the hero that's highly flawed yeah but but isn't that kind of all of us in a way or sure i mean aren't the saints flawed yeah, absolutely so what would be the difference yeah i mean i i don't know that 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 kind of anti-hero i think in it that's kind of that first sense of nihilism right where it's kind of almost throwing a wrench in the old school like superman has no weaknesses other than kryptonite and and who can blame him for that right and he's kind of your all-american boy you know, it's so so I think the ant that kind of antihero is just is that maybe we could even say positive understanding of nihilism, which is just saying, hey, we need to question this. Is this kind of hero a good example for us? Hmm. Which would kind of be like a reading a saint's life and not understanding that they were also human. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is a is a very important understanding as we read the lives of the saints versus kind of saying, no, there are no real heroes. So here, read the life of Caligula or Nero. They're just as good as your saints. Mm-hmm. Right. So oh. so Joker's just as good of a hero as Batman. He just mm-hmm. has different he just has different things he's going for. Mm-hmm. And that that's not necessarily the point in telling those stories about the villains, but mm-hmm. I think it just depends. Uh, some of this is kind of we all bring to the story our lens mm-hmm. and and you know take away from it different so, things so a couple other questions like what, another one is like what does this have to do with like the age of or it doesn't have anything to do with the age of authenticity you know and this kind of this understanding of it's about being authentic and true to yourself so right. i think of you know the the song that kind of made that idea maybe popular like metallica had a song nothing else matters you know just staying true to ourselves but nothing else matters i don't know Mm -hmm. if that's what they were getting at but sure i mean is that related i mean because you see a lot of that today like yeah the truth is my truth and right i have to speak uh, my truth yeah yeah i I think this is interesting i think if we set anything at this is kind of maybe spoilers but yeah for later in the conversation but i think if we set anything at the center that can't or let's say the bottom right if we can't if we put something at the bottom that can't bear the weight of everything else Mm -hmm. then that thing necessarily kind of implodes and becomes a black hole Mm. and and i think leads us to nihilism so if i put myself Mm -hmm. at the center of the universe if i put myself kind of as the most fundamental thing 
Yeah. Um, then, then of course there's nothing outside of myself that I'm going to use as a, a model, not well, that I'm going to consciously use as a model for correcting myself because mm-hmm. I just have to speak my truth, right? I'm just, I, this is just my authentic self and, and there's no possible, there's no possible call to repentance because I'm at the center of everything. Oh, yeah. uh, and I think that, that then necessarily we will become dissatisfied and that will, you know, that sense of self, which is probably a false self we've set as an idol there at the center of everything will implode and we will end up again, either, either recognizing something else has to be at the center or we'll mm-hmm. end up with a nihilism. I think another part of this, and we see this in kind of very popular pop culture, the Marvel multiverse, right? All of these movies coming out about this one multiverse that ends up meaning that, that there is only the imminent. There is, there is only that which, which is directly accessible. There is no transcendence in that universe. And we've encountered science fiction without transcendence since Gene Roddenberry, you know, created Star Trek, at least maybe before that, right? Science fiction has often envisioned a universe in which our knowledge leads us to, quote unquote, understand that there is no such thing as a transcendent reality. But I, I find it very difficult for a, a completely imminent worldview to, I, I, I've, it would be impressive to me for somebody to, to make that not end up in nihilism because if mm-hmm. if the universe is just a an imminent reality you know that's if that's all there is eventually the universe dies a heat death and what what did it all mean mm-hmm. okay so one more rabbit hole on this one yeah there's this strange very to me very strange phenomena the rise of the church of satanism uh as yeah. it's called yeah and, i just saw a bumper sticker the other day yeah and and it's popular among young people and yep. it seems to have some of these undertones especially in the sense of when when young people are asked why why do you like why do you believe this why are you going to this route you say oh well because this kind of strange idea that the devil just accepts us as we are doesn't right. ask anything of us doesn't ask right. us to change and so which, which i think is a failure on the part of christianity really well, i mean okay if, speak to that a little bit so we, I mean, I'm using we really, really broadly, broad, right? yeah, Christ, broad. Christianity, right? And how if you yeah. can even speak of that as a we, but have, have prevent, presented to these young people only a God of judgment and wrath. And, and we, we use the word love, but we don't really show anything that looks like love in that kind of, in a kind of real intangible way mm-hmm. on behalf of that God. And mm-hmm. so I think... I mean, that's a strong statement. I think there's... It's, I at least have spoken to people who have... Who yeah, that's, who have that's how they... That's, yeah. that, is yeah. the, that is the Christianity they've experienced. Uh, right? yeah, they've I, only I, experienced a Christianity that has condemned them and, mm-hmm. and demanded something of them that they did not think was possible mm-hmm. and, and, and not promised anything that seemed real. I, I've seen that, you know, play out in I mean, there's some circles now with within orthodoxy or on the periphery of orthodoxy, you know, basically requiring a sort of perfection. Yeah. In order to receive the sacraments. Yep. Um, and then it drives people into despair. Of course. Because you need the grace from the sacraments to strive for perfection. So they yep. it puts them in a catch twenty two. And it's a very it's also a very narrow understanding of what perfection is. Sure. That's a good point too. And, um, and I think uh, if we look at the lives of the saints, we we pretty quickly see that as we become more and more holy, we become more and more truly individuals and 
truly united with Christ and one another. And it's yeah. that it's one of those many paradoxes of orthodoxy, of orthodoxiology that as we purge our ego of all of the the passions that kind of drag us down that we may at some point in our life kind of identify with as a crucial part of ourself. But as that process happens, we actually are freed from that mm-hmm. and, and become more truly an individual, more truly unique, a, a more truly unique member of the body of Christ, which means that that we both stand out more and become more unified with God and his and his church all I at think, the same time. I think of that verse from St. Paul, right? And I think this is accurate where he says, you, you know, you are the body of Christ and individually members thereof. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, that can be hard uh, because I think that in our modern American culture, there's a very different understanding of what an individual is. Yeah. Um, and individualism is not the same thing that you're talking about of being no. a unique individual. No. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I think it's a pretty much cliche at this point to say the, the more we strive to be an individual, the more we end up acting like everybody else. Right. Yeah. Because we're we, there's no such thing. Right. We all get this is probably a topic for another podcast, right? Right. But we, our, our desires are not magically our own. They, they don't originate from some deep, unique self. They, we get them from outside. We get them from models. And I think you said something else really important also briefly there before, which is, you know, we are, we are not our passions. Yeah. But I think people often identify themselves with their passions. And by passions, yeah. we're not talking about my deep desire to be, you know, whatever. Right, uh, a painter. As modern as modern culture uses it, but we're talking about the fallen passions. Right. Uh, we should, I passions. wish we, we I wish we could come up with like a new term for like that that theological I just use the Greek terms and try to teach them like so tapathy. Tapathy, yeah. Yeah, the passions, tapathy. Yeah. You right. know, or epithemius. Although that's really desires, which can go both ways. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So then that's helpful to kind of try to get a thought of it, but what, what motivates or what drives nihilism or what fuels it? Sure. So again, that first kind of nihilism we talked about, maybe, maybe that has a positive role that it might play. I think maybe at a first step into nihilism, there's a, a dissatisfaction with the current system. Something's not working. What do you mean by system? It could be anything. It could be a religious system. It could be a system of government, uh, the societal system. Your school. uh, School, right. It could be my my local community, my my work. My company. Yeah. So uh, that would be a a very small kind of nihilism to kind of just be like, I'm, I'm against this company's policies. Because, well, because but I think we're all miserable, it, you know? Yeah, people might see it, though, as, as part of a greater whole. Right. Like, that's oh, where they sure. experience it. That's where they encounter it. That's where it, it it frustrates them so much, but then they just see it as part of what's wrong with society or whatever. Sure, sure. Um, but I think, again, that, that more broad sense, maybe the more popular sense of nihilism, just kind of the nothingness, the, mm-hmm. there, nothing really matters. There's nothing deep down at the bottom. Um, I think... There's just a lot of despair and hopelessness in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, the proliferation so, of information that was that has been made possible by the internet has done a lot to expose us to a much broader spectrum. Uh, we, we, we see so much of the evil that's yeah. going on in the world. Right. And the internet has not done as good of a job also exposing what good might be present in the world. And that I think there have been, you know, there's, you can Google all different kinds of things on, on human psychology and 
why we we gravitate we towards bad news negative because, bad news yeah because we have a, a survival instinct right that's and driving so, us to us it's like oh like there's a good harvest over there well I, that's good to know but that's not gonna my survival yeah that's not gonna kill me but uh yep but this this uh dangerous thing happening over here whatever it may be i really got to pay attention to that yeah and i'm i'm sure the the stories we tell right whether that be in song or movies or art or novels whatever it you know whatever media that we're telling and and kind of consuming and partaking of stories in certainly also affect it's you know it's a circle right those those stories are affected by whatever kind of our cultural understanding of things are and then they also f formulate new cultural understandings and and it and we kind of get this this cycle going of how our minds are being shaped mm. yeah because i mean there's silos too with all of this yeah oh absolutely yeah there's i mean so many little echo chambers mm -hmm. i mean even on on whether intended or not i mean the, the way that a lot of uh social media sites or or other sites have algorithms and the point of the algorithm was just to give you more of what they think you want so that you'll be exposed to more advertising right because they make more money that way and right. which is what um, it all boils down to but but then that creates these kind of echo chambers especially as society becomes divided or is divided over certain things yeah and you start to hear over and over the thing that you were saying mm -hmm. uh especially if you're creating content and putting it out there in mm -hmm. some way just through posts or whatever and then that's just like creating what is that called um uh negative feedback loop or just a bias you know oh yeah it right. creates it creates a bias um so so okay then so what what does this look like i mean so in life in general what does this yeah. look like yeah i think when i when i look at the world and i and i encounter the rise in people I meet or just, you know, kind of statistics of prescription, psychotropics, anti-anxiety medication, all that stuff. I see nihilism as at least a contributing factor, right? The amount of despair, the amount of hopelessness, and even stuff, more clinical stuff like depression or anxiety, I think are affected mm -hmm. by this kind of understanding that we have of an empty world. And, mm -hmm. and I think even many of us who would with our mouths proclaim a non-empty world, right? That we would proclaim a transcendent reality, that we would strive to believe in a transcendent reality. We're swimming upstream. It's very difficult to have that as our worldview when that's not the worldview of the culture we live in, right? It's like that David Foster Wallace, what is water speech that he gave at Harvard so many years ago. Yeah, I think too, something else I remember reading um, after World War II, after the atom bomb. Yeah. Uh, there was what they call, I think, the age of the nuclear man yeah. or the atomic man. I can't remember what it was called. Um, I think it's I think it's nuclear because that's Henry yeah. Nolan uses that in The Wounded Healer. So it's it's this idea of, you know, kind of a despair of like that there's 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 possible to create a weapon that could just wipe out huge areas. Lots and of we people. used it. And and we used it, and and now we have much more powerful versions of the same, right? Um, and then so just thinking about that, you know, the Oppenheimer movie uh, uh -huh. came out. Of course, Oppenheimer was the you know one of the, the scientists in the Manhattan Project that helped develop the atom bomb. And yeah, and and it's interesting, you know, I mean, historically, they were afraid that the Nazis were developing one, 
mm-hmm. that Germany was going to develop one. And so as there was an arms race, um, we tend to think of the nuclear arms race with the Soviet Union, but the first one was actually against, I guess, or with uh, the uh, Germany in World War II. There's a fear they were going to develop it, and if they developed it, they were definitely going to use it. Right. Um, and so, so I guess we developed it first um, and used it first, and then there was kind of the fallout from that. So that this is just an example of something that can create this kind of overwhelming feeling of like you can't wrap your brain around it, and it yeah. creates this it can create for people kind of this feeling of despair. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this kind of, I guess what I'm alluding to is this power of this feeling of hopelessness that's fueled by things that are out of your control. Mm. Right. And part of that information overload is just, we see how out of control we are or, right? or, or, how, or, many or, or how little that are control happening. we have. Yeah. How many things that are happening out there that we can do nothing about yeah. and makes us feel powerless. Yeah. Um, yeah. In many ways. And threatened. Um, yep. So then, okay. Yeah, so this a, is, there's a lot of fear. Yes. This, so it's a pretty heavy topic, but, you know, kind of moving forward, what what's the solution or, or what? how do we deal with this? Yeah. I did a lot of research on this topic for a presentation I gave at a, one of the local OCFs, and I called that presentation, How to Be an Undeniolist. Mm-hmm. Um, Undi instead of anti. Right. I deliberately wrote the Andi in Greek characters mm-hmm. and then wrote nihilist in English characters because I wanted that different pr- pronunciation because it's anti in English almost always means opposed to, right? Like it's anti-social from, or, or whatever. Because it's um, from the Latin. Right. But Andi, while it can mean in Greek, can mean opposed to, it also can mean instead of. So we right. use this in our church often when we invite people to come receive the andidoron, mm-hmm. right? And doron is the gift, mm-hmm. uh, which is Eucharist. And andidoron is what those who are unable to receive at that time would receive instead of mm-hmm. the gift. Yeah. Um, so that might be that people are taking that to people who are sick or people who have been, you know, are in a time of excommunication, um, which we don't really do anymore, but, you know, a, a penance uh, time where they're not receiving the Eucharist or, or we don't do it that often anymore. Uh, so, so that, that on the is what you, what you receive instead of the gift. So very deliberately, I don't think that we should become anti-nihilists. We shouldn't mm-hmm. be out there trying to combat nihilism and certainly not trying to combat nihilists. That is not, I don't think that's the way that we've been presented by Christ and his and his followers and the saints. I think we're always presented an other way, mm-hmm. uh, a, a way instead of nihilism, a way mm-hmm. instead of despair, a way instead of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, because what would be ideal is not that all of those who are on the way of nihilism or despair or hopelessness or or fear or anxiety or whatever it is, which are is the way we found ourselves on at various times in our life, I'm sure, it's not that they would be destroyed, but that of course they would also find this other way, that they would find a way of hope and joy and peace. And so... I think there are a few a few different things that we can look at and think about in our spiritual life. Um, I don't even want to use that. I, I was having a conversation recently. I think I we tend to overuse the idea of spiritual life. It's just our life, right? Mm-hmm. Our life isn't divided into like a right. secular and a sacred space. So, in our life, right? And I think one of those one of those things is presence, right? Making time to 
be present to the moment. You know, for for a lot of us, I think that's very, very difficult. Uh, we have a 24-7 distraction machine that lives in our pocket and can whisk us off to any manner of other places and times and things. So I think one of the things is being present. It's very important to, especially when we're with other humans, to be mm-hmm. present to those other humans, to really engage in that interaction and put the phone away, put it on do not disturb, whatever it may be. And even to just take some time each day to be present in stillness, in quietness, in solitude yeah. uh, to the moment and, and you know, to hear what God might say to us in that present. Well, and it's, so I rem- it reminds me of what uh, Benedict, St. Benedict of Nursia said, do what you're doing. I like that. I haven't heard that. That's good. Yeah. Do what you're doing. Well, that actually kind of brings me to a, another one. So there's a ecumenical, he's he's Catholic, but he's very involved in kind of ecumenical spiritual dialogue. His name, I, his name escapes me right now, but uh, I read this quote by him. He was talking to a poet and he said, the antidote to exhaustion is not rest, it's wholeheartedness. You're only half here and half here will kill you after a while. Hmm. And I think so much, so many people i think that's another thing we could add to that list hopelessness despair exhaustion mm-hmm. right i think so many people are feeling so worn down physically mm-hmm. emotionally yep. spiritually psychologically yep. and and i think part of that is we don't we're not often wholeheartedly anywhere or in any activity so that i think that quote from St. Benedict also speaks to that, do what you're doing. And if what you're doing isn't worth doing wholeheartedly, you know, maybe you can't find something else to do immediately, but look towards it, you know, yeah, look I towards think, a future in which you can do, you can wholeheartedly do what you're doing. Yeah. I think just to jump in there, um, one of the things I'm thinking about is that sometimes in life, things can happen to you. Yeah. Uh, with relationships or, you know, a hurt, um, yep. you know, someone hurts you or betrays you yeah, uh, in some way. And it can, it can create a broken heartedness. Let's just use that overused term. <laughs> and, um, and, but, but I think that can create a fear for people to re-engage with a wholeheartedness. Mm, absolutely. And can make that challenging. And, and because there's this, I don't want to have, I don't want to get broken again. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of leads to that half-heartedness or even kind of um not even that, just like I don't I don't want to engage. And yeah. so further isolation, which kind of leads to a further um despair or hopelessness, feeling of hopelessness. That can yeah. be very hard to overcome. Um absolutely, yeah. But I think it's I think it's important. I'm glad you're bringing this up. It's important for us to find ways to be wholehearted in what we're doing, even if we need to practice being wholehearted in other places or other areas or with other people where we might, you know, be more safe to do that. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the kind of thing that maybe a spiritual father can help with. Maybe a therapist should be helping with that. Right. I mean, those, these are big things and and they're really important to an abundant life. I mean, which is what Christ says he came that we could have. So yeah, definitely things to be working towards. Mm-hmm. And so then what else What else can we do to be an undi nihilist? Yeah, yeah. I think these first ones, I mean, they're all kind of related. Uh, yeah. There's, But another one is 
be uh be aware of i'll, I'll use the phrase because i'm gonna it's in the quote i'm gonna read in a second be aware of what we're partaking of so are we partaking of a worldview of fullness mm. or are we partaking of a worldview of nothingness? Are we partaking of a worldview of transcendence or a worldview of imminence? Um, so can partaking be also consuming? Is that yeah, kind of the same consuming. idea? What are you okay. consuming? Right. Mm-hmm. Not, and obviously, I mean, I guess what, you know, what you're eating is certainly that's, that's important. Could be an image I'm of it. Speaking more abstractly right what are you consuming what media are you consuming uh for entertainment for information for uh Mm -hmm. education whatever it might be so there's a kind of going back to that first one how are you spending your time right how are you spending your time so scott cairns is a orthodox poet he says regardless of our situations we are inevitably right inevitably partaking of something or other at every moment right so in the example of kind of being trying to be in stillness, maybe we're partaking of the present moment, but we often are tempted to be partaking of the past or the future because that's our mind runs off to the past and the future often. Yeah. Um, so we are inevitably partaking of something or other at every moment. The quote continues. The catch is that we will either partake of what is, or we will partake of the absence of what is. We either partake of life which is all that has true being by way of its connection to God or of death, which is all that has opted to sever that connection. Mm. And I really like that quote. And I really, I I really like that quote, especially because of its spirit of, I'll use the term that just, that just gets people's hackles up ecumenism, Mm -hmm. right? Which is really just the spirit of, you know, that quote from St. Basil, that that gave the name to the you know to Steve Christopher's YouTube series be the bee mm-hmm. right it was it was there is a quote about that from St Paisius but i believe Steve's is from St Basil's which is right wherever there is goodness right. wherever there is truth wherever there is beauty that is god's goodness and god's mm-hmm. truth and god's beauty because it has goodness and truth and beauty because it partakes that you know that kind of abstract thing partakes there's that word again of god of something that god is doing and all, so all good gifts are from above yeah exactly exactly um, saint, and saint paisios the athenite i think he's just quoting saint basil so really it's just it goes back to saint basil sure so i yeah so i think it's a very it that is to me it could be read as a quote that's kind of like very heavy and like, oh, at every moment I'm all, you know, but right. I, I think of it as a, as a quote that's very joyful. Well, right? it, is, it is joyful because the image is actually the bee going over the, the flower patch and it right. takes the best pollen from wherever it finds it uh, and, and leaves the rest. And, and uh, St. Basil, I think I could be wrong about this. That came out of an exhortation to parents about whether or not their children should be reading the the classics, the pagan yeah, classics. That's, um, I'm pretty sure that's what it's from. And so here, here they're asking them: should be basically a modern a modern version of the same question would be: should our children be reading secular literature? But of Can course, I, should our kids read Harry Potter? <laughs> so, but I want to go back to what you said before: this this false dichotomy between secular and spiritual. Right. Um, so, um, which yeah, Father Alexander Men talks about that a lot. But uh, mm-hmm. you know that that that's kind of. Um, that's not the way we look at the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 
it's St. Paul too, right? Whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever yeah. is pure. Philippians, yeah. Think on any of these things, right? Yeah. So it's we can we can get so kind of tangled up in knots and be like, if I'm not listening to Byzantine chant, if I'm not, you know, reading the or thinking about the lives of the saints and the church fathers, well then I'm, you know, like wasting my time. I think that can just as quickly lead us to a, a nihilism because it's just too hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we just end up in a despair of like, I can never, I'm never going to be able to do that. Well, so um, going back to, there's this analogy of life, um, like riding a bicycle and, uh, you know, the temptations are to go too fast or too slow. Yeah. You know, cause in both instances you're going to crash. Yep. Um, so it's when you're, you're going at a, a nice you know, speed that you can maintain that that's where you want to be. Yeah. So the, the final thing that I, I want to bring up is the little way. So how to be an undenialist is the little way. And I'm, I'm using that term. I'm going to, I'm going to bring up a few different people, but it's, it's primarily from St. Therese of Lisieux, who's a Catholic saint, but Father Thomas Hopko loved her dearly and, and quoted her all the time. So if Mm -hmm. Father Thomas Hopko was quoting her, I feel, I feel pretty safe in doing so. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a special place in my heart for her because there was a shrine to St. Therese just down the street from us when we lived in Detroit and we would take walks down there pretty often. And then every day once the pandemic started, so that, that was a a very special place to us. So I really, I really like St. Therese and her, her autobiography is full of really good spiritual wisdom again i'm using the term it's just it's full of really good wisdom yeah and one of the things she says that kind of gives the one of the examples of why her outlook is called the little way is miss no single opportunity of making some small sacrifice here by a smiling look there by a kindly word always doing the smallest right and doing it all for love and i just love that I think it's so great. I think, again, kind of coming back to that, we see so much big evil in the world, so much big destruction of human life and disregard for human life that that we think, well, if I can't do an equally big good thing, mm-hmm. well, then what's the point, right? If I can't counteract the suffering of, you know, the war in, in Gaza and Israel, well, then why am I even trying, right? I think we can be tempted to that that way of thinking sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I I just love that she's like, no, just smile at that person. You know, say say something nice to the to the barista at, at your coffee shop, you know. Do the smallest good thing and do it for love. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's so great. And it's reflected in in the there's a letter that Saint Theophon, one of you know, one of our saints, a, a relatively modern saint from Russia, St. Theophan the Recluse, in one of his letters to one of his spiritual children, you know, this, this spiritual child was kind of, she was saying, there's so much evil in the world. There's so many people dying of hunger and starvation, and there's so much violence. And And he just says, look, you can't, you can't fix that. That's not your circle. That's not your arena. And he says, do whatever falls to your hands. Mm-hmm. Love the person that God brings to you to show love to. And then one that somebody that I bring up a lot, Dr. Nicole Rokas, uh, she has a podcast called Time Eternal, and she has a series in that podcast called Time and Despondency, kind of about this issue of despondency and despair. And I won't go through even 
partially really what what she talks about but one of her the way one of the ways she suggests we rewire or short circuit the cycle of despair and hopelessness is humor we need we can laugh it's good to laugh you know as long as there of course there is bad humor right right humor, humor at the Don't... expense of somebody right yeah um, exactly or even too harshly self-deprecating humor but right humor is good Mm-hmm. Things are funny sometimes and and that's wonderful and it's and it's good to it's good for us to laugh. Mm-hmm. And this is not a definitive list and it's not, you know, kind of a magic bullet or anything like that, right? But that's okay. We again, we aren't this isn't this isn't how we become anti-nihilists. It's how mm-hmm. we become anti-nihilists. How we just offer another way, a way that that instead of having despair and hopelessness as hope and joy and and the peace of Christ. Yeah. And so as we journey towards the nativity of our Lord. Yeah. Towards the source of our hope, of our peace, of of love and joy. You know, we we have this uh as a way of kind of working working towards that, working towards that end so that we may have the abundant life with him. Yeah. All right. This has been uh this has been an intense discussion, but a good one. <laughs> I think I hope so. Yeah. Um, where if people have questions, where can they, and I'm sure there might be follow-up questions. And so maybe changing pace a little bit, if you have questions about anything we talked about today, uh, where can they send those in? Yeah. If you have questions about what we talked today, we can, we can certainly maybe dedicate another podcast to following this up. You can email us at churchcoffeepod at gmail.com, or you could leave us a voicemail at 317-660- five four nine eight or even just let us know if this resonated with you if if you feel like yeah this is this is the struggle in the world that i'm that i'm experiencing that i'm aware of that would be would be even great to hear that thank you for listening to church coffee pod if you enjoyed what you heard please like subscribe and leave a review and make sure to tell your friends that church coffee isn't so bad after all peace